0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. Anglican 101, a history of the Anglican Communion led by Father Christopher Rodriguez is a dynamic and educational study that vividly teaches how the Anglican Church was established, beginning with the Old Testament and continuing through present day. Well, we're gonna cover everything from the creation of the universe to today in six weeks. And we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, obviously you can't cover everything. So I'm gonna pick a few threads which you will, uh, you'll begin to discern as we move through it. But uh, let's go ahead and start. So uh, this is my main screen. This is your captain speaking. <laughs> I'm not a techie, by the way. But my here's the funny thing. Um, William Shatner actually looks like, when I was a little kid, when I was like 10, my dad and I used to watch these old Star Trek movies. And my dad actually looked, well, did look like, and actually looks like him now, <laughs> William Shatner. Um, And so, anyway, it's just kind of an inside joke. But uh, we are gonna be looking at, obviously, if we're gonna cover everything in six weeks, then we've gotta take a very high level view, make sense? So today we're gonna cover everything through from the creation to all the way through the Old Testament in half an hour. So, the point being, we're gonna go very fast and very high level, and um, if we have time for questions, I'll try to allow that, Uh, but if I ask you to wait till the end, Please don't take it the wrong way. I just have a lot of material to cover. So we are going to boldly go where few have gone before. (laughs) To quote uh, Captain James Tiberius Kirk, salvation history in six weeks, maybe seven if we need it. And what I'm going to try to show you is how the Episcopal Church fits into, I have it here in capital letters, the plan. What do you think the plan is? What is the plan? To get you to heaven and that's what's that the return, the return of Christ right uh, to get you to heaven until or, or be ready for Christ's return we're going to be using a term repeatedly here it's called salvation history and that is basically the history of salvation you guys are smart this would be easy we could do this in five weeks with this crowd <laughs> So anyway, I wanna talk about how the Episcopal Church fits into the plan of salvation history. And more importantly, I want you to understand something which is really important to me, and what, what makes us different, right? What makes us Christians, I mean all, any Orthodox little o, uh, Christian group, believes in pretty much the same stuff, but what makes Anglicans different from Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, which we, which we share a great deal of affinity with, uh, what does it make us different from Presbyterians or Lutherans or non-church evangelicals, you name it. What makes us different from ACNA, we'll get to that too, Those, the Christ Church, we'll bring it, dial it into our local circumstance. But the point is I want you to understand who we are and what makes us distinct and actually what makes us unique in a lot of ways and why we are the one true church. I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> But we will actually talk about that. What is the, what is, what is the church? So let's start, let's start where you have to always start, and that is in the beginning. In the beginning, uh, what, was in, what was before the beginning? Nothing. There's an old expression. Actually, it's an important point. There's an expression called creation ex- Nihilo, anybody heard that before? It's a Latin word and it means creation from nothing. This is actually a really important point. By the way, if this is the first time you've come to one of my lectures, I love whiteboards. And I, and I actually took care of the squeak this week. <laughs> <laughs> Father Gritter was up here working on it last week and the squeak was driving me nuts. It wasn't your fault, it's been doing it for, for a while. So what I want you to see here, this is an important thing. God is, does not exist in time. So when God created the world and the cosmos and the universe, he actually created time also. And again, this is, gonna, this is like trying to have the goldfish think of what it's like outside the goldfish bowl. So your, bra- your brain is not going to really register a lot of this. But you can, you can apprehend it, if you stay with me, that when God, cr- here is, here's God okay, and he creates everything, okay, and in that everything is time and space and you are in there somewhere and me, okay, but the important thing to remember about, about the God of the Bible, which is actually pretty fascinating, is that God in the beginning, an arche in Greek, God created, but God is himself not in time. Does that make sense? you will save yourself a lot of headache and a lot of frustration wondering, well, if God knew that that young man was going to shoot up Parkland School, why didn't he stop him, for example, right? It's a good question. But, it, you, but what that question fails to apprehend is that God is actually outside of time. So God is actually at the conclusion of time, even right now. Does that make sense? Uh, and actually, when we get to the Reformation, we're going to cover this in some detail, because the idea of God's foreknowledge and omniscience was a big thing with the Presbyterians, for example. But what I want you to see is an important point, is that God lives outside of time. I'll put it to you this way. God is, right now, at the creation of the world, uh, Jesus' birth, my birth, and the end of the world, all simultaneously. How does that work? I have the foggiest idea. But I can tell you, if God creates time itself, which he does, and the Big Bang confirms this, if you believe the Big Bang theory, um, God is outside of it. So any questions about that? Is that crystal clear? Yeah. I mean, I hopefully it will help you. You know, the interesting thing about the human mind is that you, even though to think of God being outside of time is completely um, irrational for us, right? You can't really get your mind around it. You can accept it as true, which is fascinating, because computers don't work that way. <laughs> But um, your your brain, because you are made in God's image, which we're gonna get to in a moment, can actually accept the fact that God exists outside of time, okay? So when you think about what was God doing before he created the universe, it's an invalid question, there was no time. Okay, so any questions on that one? And that's a pretty heady topic, but it's uh, it's an important one. In the beginning, the first three words of the Bible have a huge amount of layers to them. And in the beginning, God creates all sorts of stuff. And when he creates it, what is it? Is it bad? It's good. it's good. God creates stuff, and he creates it good, which is another, if you know human history, to say that creation is good is radical. Um, you ever noticed? we'll get to this a little bit, the Greeks and the Romans, they never studied science. Do you want to know why? Because their gods uh, were not outside of time, they were in time. And they were also, the gods were not necessarily good, and neither were you or they. In other words, good and e- the, the premise that people are made good is a radically unique uh, idea from the Old Testament. And the, reason, and the re- reason that creation is good means that people can actually study it. The Romans and the Greeks never studied science. So they, they would, they, philosophy, yes, but their, their, whole, their whole point was to have slaves who did all the dirty work, because physical stuff is bad, creation is bad. Christians are like, no way, man, we're gonna study this because God made it what? Good, and it's worth study. That's an important um, little thought to get your mind around, that creation being good is a radical idea in the history of human thought. And not only is creation good, so are man and woman. God creates man and women in his image, right, and God said that it was what, good. good. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that uh, human beings have rights? Yes or, it's not a it's not a trick question. Yes or no. You do, right? Why do you believe that? Like why? Okay, let me let me put it to you this way. Why do you why do why do people believe that human beings have rights? Experience. Okay, good. Experience. What else might you say? You don't know? You should know because if they... Because God gave them to us, okay? This is an important point. When God To say that you were made in God's image, again, this is another radical idea in the history of human religions, that, that God is outside of time, he interacts with it, but he's outside of it, that creation is good, woo, that's radical stuff, and the fact that you have intrinsic value as a human being is radical stuff. That is unique to the biblical worldview of humanity. Every other religion looks at humans as basically uh, something and you know, some religions look at humanity as just something dispensable, right? or worm food, right? Uh, or that people um, I, I'll give you another example. Uh, some worldviews and a worldview is how you see the world, your, the assumptions you make about a world says that man does not have any intrinsic value. Anybody ever heard of this guy?? I was, if you've come here, if you've heard me lecture before, you've heard about him. His name is Frederick Nietzsche. He's the famous guy that said, God is dead. You ever heard of that before? Yes? There's a great bumper sticker once. It said, it said uh, God is dead, Nietzsche. And that, underneath it, it said, Nietzsche is dead, God. It's kind of funny. If anybody finds that, buy me one. But if you take. Man and women being made in God's image, if you deny that, which a lot of people in history have, and a lot of people in our culture are doing even now, following on his footsteps, if you buy into an atheistic worldview where you are nothing more than a collection of atoms and you are not made in God's image, then you have no innate human rights. There's nothing... Nietzsche, his big thing was what, what, makes, what makes things right is he called it the will to power. If you can do it, do it. The might makes right. And if there's no God, right, and if you are not made in God's image with intrinsic value, then he's right. All I'm trying to say to you is give you a real uh, a brief taste of something very profound, that what the Bible says about creation and about you and me is radical stuff, and it's very easily eroded. And if it's eroded, look out, because that's what comes next. And in fact, if you don't know your history, uh, the Third Reich made generous use of Friedrich Nietzsche because his, his writings were very convenient to show that certain people groups, i.e. Jews and gypsies and others, that they did not have intrinsic worth and therefore get rid of them. So this is important stuff. Any questions or comments on that? We're not, we're not even at Anglicanism yet, but we'll get there. Anybody confused? Sure. Are you? All right, so then God creates everything and he creates it good, and then we see something, we experience something called the fall, right? Adam and Eve, you heard of this before? Uh, the fall, this is again a really important point, and it's, I'm preaching on this today actually, that God creates all things good, including you, but we as humanity chose to walk away from him. Adam and Eve, you know, we think of it as a children's story, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of evil, but if you listen closely to what the scripture says, Adam and Eve, when they were originally created, didn't even know what evil was. Okay, This is what the Bible says. And so they actually, when they eat this fruit, karpa in Greek, when they eat this fruit, they actually become aware of the nature of evil, meaning that when God created humanity, he created us for a world altogether different from the one we currently inhabit. Right? In other words, I mean, let me ask you this. Uh, a couple days ago, last week, uh, those kids were shot, right, in, in the school. Horrible, horrible thing. I'm talking about that today, too, a little bit. Was that fair or not? Was it right or wrong? Wrong. wrong. Now, why do you say that? And you re- and I'm, and I, and if you're going, well, what do you mean? Well, what I've just made you do is question your own assumptions about the way the world works, right? That, that kind of stuff, a, a 19-year-old kid walking into a school and shooting it up and killing people, isn't supposed to happen, is it? No, but it did. So on what grounds do you say it shouldn't happen? If evil has always existed, this is important, if evil has always existed, which it has since the fall, and you say well it shouldn't be that way, what are you appealing to? You know what you're appealing to? You're appealing to creation the way that God made you in the Garden of Eden where there was no evil and there was no kids with ar 15 shooting up schools. This is profound stuff. Am I confusing you? I hope not. What I'm trying to show you is that God created us good, he created order good, and he created us for a world different than the one we currently inhabit. And so, the whole history of the Bible, from Genesis chapter two, which is where the fall occurs, can I have that Bible right there? This book is the most important book you can ever get your hands on, and it will tell you everything you ever wanna know about the things that matter. And I'm gonna show you something interesting. If you go to Genesis chapter two, which is where the fall occurs, We're not, we've we've already studied this in E100. This is the, okay, so the first page and a half are Eden. Chapter, uh, chapter three is the fall. Everything else in here, everything in here to the very end of the book, is about God working with his people living in a fallen world. And so what you begin to, what this book is about and what Christianity is about is God's plan to redeem his people from the fall. Um, let me put it to you like this, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, God actually, when he created humanity, he gave us free will, okay? Meaning the ability to choose right and wrong. Why did God give us free will? If it causes so many problems, why did he give it to us? Why do you think? Why do you, it's not a trick question. Why do you think God gave us free will? Paul? created us in his image. Yes, God has will, okay? God is a, vo, a God of volition. What does God want from you? Does he want obedience from you? Love. Love. If he wanted obedience, he'd just make you a robot. He doesn't want obedience. What he wants is love. Can love be coerced? It cannot be, right? So here's the seemingly intractable problem, which actually Jesus solves. (laughs) Here's the problem that Christianity solves. How does a God who is good and who loves people intimately, meaning in your inner being, who allows for human free will, but wants to rescue us from us when we've violated it without taking away free will. How do you solve that problem? Well, we're going to see. That's what Christianity is all about. How does a God allow for free will because he wants us to love him in return? He can't force it. It would be, it would be uh, kidnapping, right? Love must be freely given, so how does God rescue people who are able to walk away from him as, as sinful people without violating our free will? That's what we're gonna see, but not today. Any questions? It's a recurring theme, and what I want you to see here is as a result of the fall, Adam and Eve, and that whole thread, we have the world we live in now is different from the world that God created us to live in, and now we have things like death and suffering and sin and brokenness and cancer and everything that's wrong with the world is a result of that fall because we no longer live in the world that God created us for. But He'll restore it, and we'll get to that down the road. You guys with me so far? That's the backstory. If you don't know the backstory, Christianity doesn't make any sense. You got to know the backstory. And one thing we see here, we're going to see in a moment, is that despite God, human sinfulness, despite our brokenness, despite our walking away from Him, He does not abandon His people. Okay? Any comments? Observations? Okay, so how does God work? How does God work with the Old Testament people, which we know as Jews or Israelites at one point? God works through all mankind, but he works, uh, he works in a special way through something called a covenant. And let me back up a minute. There's two different things in theology, something called uh, general revelation and something called revealed uh, sorry, general theology and revealed theology, or general religion and revealed religion. Let me, let me ask you, let me make a point. You ever, it has been proven by anthropologists that all human cultures believe in a god. Now, that could be weird stuff, like big, gigantic, you know, man-eating squid or something. But every, every human culture believes in a god outside of the created order, or at least ephemeral, right, non-physical. Everybody believes in that. And the reason that the Bible says that that's true, is because God, God, the true God, created us in his image. Therefore, we are born with an innate sense of his existence, right? We don't always know it until he tells us about himself, but we know that God exists. Any of you, my, my earliest experience of God was when I was about three, and I remember looking up, I was playing uh, Tonka trucks with a friend of mine, and, and I looked up and there was a whole grove of trees, and it was moving back and forth in this big violent wind, and I just knew, I can't tell you how I did, but I just knew um, intrinsically that there was a God there, something way bigger than me. Make sense? And so every, I would argue every human being, every human being, even if they claim to be atheists, which is another thread, believes that God exists, believes in something outside of themselves. Okay? That's general revelation. But then you see God working in a special way with a certain group of people that he picks. Why? We don't know but he picks a certain group of people, a narrower circle that he chooses to reveal himself through, okay? So there's general revelation. You can look in the stars and see that there's something bigger than you, but then God chooses to reveal himself to a small subset of people, and that we we will see are eventually the Jews and then the church. We see uh, Noah. Who's Noah? What did Noah do? He He built an ark. Why? Because God told him to. Why did God pick Noah? Noah was a righteous man. He tried to do the right thing, but God picked Noah and had a little group of people that he used to then minister to from that little group outside of the larger uh, created order. You then see the little group expand. You see Abraham, right? Abraham is, we're talking about him this morning in the scriptures. God reveals himself to Abraham, right? Abraham is uh, a man of no account, He's just a guy that God picked. He is a per- and interestingly, when you look through scripture, the people that God picks for these roles are usually complete nobodies. God never uses the big, mighty people. He will put people in big, mighty places to accomplish a goal, like Joseph, but he never starts there. He always starts with nobodies. And the reason, he- why do you think God starts with nobodies? Why would God start with a nobody to make his power manifested? What do you think? You can accept it.
1: You could, okay, so a person who's a nobody can
0: maybe be more humble and accept it. But if I, if I picked Abraham, who's a man of no account, and he does amazing things because of what God has done through him, where does that power come from? Abraham? No, it comes from God. And so God repeatedly uses the, the, the humble to shame, to call to account the proud. It's just the way he is. And then you begin to see in this covenant idea, God creates covenants and a small group of people that he works with, the family of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Um, and then we see that begin to go from there. And then we see that the Jews are, the Jews become what's known as the elect people of God. They're the ones that God chose to reveal himself to. Okay, you with me? This idea of a covenant, I wanna wanna spend a few minutes with the covenant idea because it it goes into the New Testament. What's a covenant? Agreement. An agreement. Anybody here have a, a mortgage on your house? That's a covenant. It's, a, it's an agreement between two parties with an with a, with a, with a obligation attached to it. Okay? And so God is a God who, whatever, for whatever reason, chooses to work through his people through a series of agreements. covenants or agreements. A covenant is a promise between two people. We see um, the covenant that God makes with Noah. Well, after Noah's in the boat in the ark and they uh, and the land the waters recede, God says, puts a puts a rainbow in the cloud, and what does God promise Noah? That he'll never destroy the earth by water again. And he gives an, a, a rainbow as a symbol of that. Um, later on we see the Abrahamic covenant. There's two of them. One is he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you very fruitful. And then he also promises that Abraham will be the progenitor of a, a man who will save God's people. We don't know who that is until Jesus arrives, but that's who it is. We see the Mosaic Covenant, where God gives the Ten Commandments. We see the Davidic Covenant, where God says that I'm gonna have a person on the throne of David. And then we see the New Covenant in, Je- in Jeremiah. The point I want you to see here, and, it's, and you can always worry about these details, but the most important part of this covenantal idea is that God always works through a series of promises with his people, but it's not contingent upon the people to keep their end of the bargain. So for example, okay, this is really, really important. Um, You'll see why next week. But what you see with the God of the Old Testament is he creates a series of promises with his people that he will do things even if they don't keep their end of the bargain. When God says to Noah, Noah, I am never going to destroy the world by water again, he doesn't say Noah has to do anything to get that result when God creates the covenant with Abraham. He doesn't say, Abraham, you've got to do this, this, and this for me to keep my end of the bargain, no. God says, I am making a covenant with you, Abraham, and that's a promise, a one-way promise from God to his people. And we will see in the new covenant that that whole thing is fulfilled. That's the covenant through Christ, but we'll get to that later. The point I want you to remember as we move on is that God is a God who works through a series of one-way promises. Imagine this. Imagine you you're, you're, uh, had a had a, um, a your mortgage, and on my mortgage I've got to pay it once a month, or else you know I get penalized, and then they eventually foreclose on your house. What if your mortgage said you owe us X amount of dollars, but if you can't pay it, that's okay, <laughs> right? Or what if uh, what if your uh, another covenant? I don't know. Say. Um, You've got a work contract, right, or an employer, and your employer says, you know, you're expected to be here every day at nine o'clock, but if you don't show up, that's okay. I'll be here at nine, and I'll let you keep that house, and I'll be on time, but if you're not here, that's okay. I'm keeping my end of the bargain. That is the God of the Old Testament. Most people don't realize that. They think the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger. Nonsense, we'll get to that later. The Old Testament God is a God of covenant who makes promises to his people even though they can't eat, keep their end of the bargain, okay? Why does God have wrath in the Old Testament and not the New? We'll get to that. There's a good answer for that, but not today. Any questions or comments? So God created the world. He created it good. He created you good. He gave you an alien. He gave you rights by virtue of you being made in his image. And he talks to his, his people through covenants. And one other thing you see is this very important thread, right? And that's this. Can you all see that? Do you have a copy of that in your... Your a handout there? The Israelites. Um, I didn't give you all the people in the puzzle because it would be just a mess, but I picked out a few, and if you look there, you see Abraham and Sarah, right? On your paper. God reveals himself to Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to work through your family line, Abraham. Why Abraham? Because uh, he picked him, no reason, really. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son, has two sons, named Jacob and Esau, okay? And then, and then Jacob has several wives and some other non-wives that also bore children of his, of his which is another whole thread. Uh, but one thing I want you to see here is that God says, Abraham, I'm going to work through your lineage. And it doesn't, it's not contingent upon Abraham doing the right thing. Anybody ever studied the life of Abraham or Jacob? Good guys or bad guys? Scoundrels. that's the point, that's the entire point, God works through scoundrels, he works through people that are not able to keep their end of the bargain, and so what you see here, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are the covenant people, and then Jacob has 12 sons with several women, um, and those sons become the 12, Jacob's name is changed to what, anybody know? Israel. Jacob fights with God at one point. He wrestles with God, and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob was just a liar and, a, well, lots of things. Not a very good guy. But God changes his name to Israel, right? And then his Israel has 12 sons that become known as Israelites. Okay? And those become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So, for example, you have uh, Reubenites, Simeonites, Levites, you've heard of them, Judites, Issachar, Zebulun, that guy Judah right there? No, sorry, um, that guy Judah, number four from the left, is the, tri- the tribe and the lineage of who? Of who? Of Jesus. So, when God says, I'm going to promise you this lineage, and the Savior of the world is going to come out of this lineage, Right here, I mean, not for a while, but he comes out of this this tribe, the tribe of Judah. The point I want you to see here, friends, is that God works through a series of one-way promises that are in place whether or not humans, who are sinners and broken, can keep their end of the bargain or not. That's all you gotta learn for today. Any questions or comments? Yes? One second, Uh, Jason's in the back, it's okay. Just to clarify, Abraham was the first. Yes. if I'm not mistaken, God showed his power, correct me from wrong, yes. to make that whole line from a barren woman. That's right. That's a repeating theme in the Old Testament, that God uses not only nobodies, but he uses nobodies who have wives that can't have children. <laughs> just to make the point, just to make the point that it's not you, it's God working through you. And that is an incredibly important detail that most Christians don't quite get. A lot of Christians think that, you know, God loves those who, who do the right thing. That's not true. Um, and, you, and you see it even in the Old Testament, even with the law. You had a question? I'm sorry, Jackie. Um, what about when the Israel, Israelites were told to either obey God and receive blessing, or, or not obey and then, you know, receive... Blessing? That's a good point. Okay. okay, Jackie asked the question, well, what about the point where God, if that's true, then why the law? If God doesn't care about what you do, then why the law? That's a very good question. Let me answer it. Uh, It's a profound question, but let me give you a simple answer to it, if I can. God does not say, my care of you is contingent upon your behavior. God does say, if you make your own bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. So for example, if you go out and drink a 12-pack of beer and get in your car and crash your car, and get in an accident, guess what? That consequence is on you. Does God still love you? Yes. Is God still faithful to you? Yes. But do you bear the consequence of that that decision? Absolutely you do. So the point being, Jackie, what God says, if you obey the law, you will flourish. You will be a a nation which is above all others. And sometimes the Jews actually do. But more often than not, just like us, we fail. And and then there's a consequence of that and their their livelihood. But God never revokes the promise that if they come back to him, he'll restore them. Is that clear, everybody? So um, it's kind of like, any of you have kids? Okay, it's, not, it's the same kind of parallel. You've got your children, right? They might go out and do something which you really don't agree with. They might misbehave. They might lie. Whatever. You've all got kids. Um, they might do something which you don't agree with, and you might even let them have a consequence. If you're a good parent, in fact, you do let them have a consequence. But do you still love them? Yes. And if they come back to you, will you receive them? Yes, you will. You want to know why? Because you're created in God's image. You're like he is in that regard. So am I. So I hope I answered that question, Jackie. It's a, it's a, yeah. So what I want you to see then, I mean, this is we're covering the entire Old Testament in twenty minutes or less. Again, I'm just giving you little nuggets because we're going to pick up with the church. What I want you to see here is that God's promise to the Jews is that He will be faithful in His covenant even if they are not faithful. He will be, and this is part of God's nature, even in, with, the, with the church. Um, they, the God's people are to obey the law, right? To be different, to be distinct from the culture in which they live, just like we are. And they will have blessing if they obey, and if they go- walk away from God, they will bear the consequences of their actions. But still, God's promise remains in place. And so here's the, uh, here's the, the departing point I want you to see for today. Sort of, I'm sort of setting up the narrative of the paradox of the Old Testament, and that is this, that God promises blessing upon his people, he promises he will be faithful, he calls them to obedience, he calls them to be, do the right thing, but they can't do it. Neither can you, nor or I, God knows. So here's, here's the paradox and the question which hangs out there, which we're gonna talk about next week, and I want you to see it, it's so important, that God says, do the right thing, I will be faithful, Who is going to do the right thing? If you can't do it yourself, who will? Jesus. Right. So Jesus is the logical consequence of a God that allows free will, but also is just, expects punishment for evil things that are committed. Does that make sense, everyone? If it doesn't make sense yet, it will. Um, God is a God of both love and grace and justice, which means that sins must be paid for. And you think, well, that's awfully cruel. Well, dial it in for a personal experience. Should that kid that shot Parkland go scot-free? No. No, I mean, there's, there's mental illness and all that involved. Who knows what the courts will decide. But ju- injustice requires payment. Otherwise, it's not injustice. It's God just making it up as he goes along. goes along. So the paradox of the Old Testament is that God both loves and is committed to humanity, but also demands justice. How do you reconcile those two things? We'll talk about that next week. Yes, how George. How do we, how do we I don't want to get into that today. How do we justify We don't. What he did was wrong. What that man, I'm talking about this in my sermon, what that kid did in that shooting was a sin. Pure and simple. It was broken evil. <laughs> That's the whole idea of mental illness and all that. You know, is he guilty? That's a whole other thing. What I'm saying is that what happened in Parkland was evil. And, and you know what, it's a matter of degree, because we all, we all do things that are wrong. That's another thread. I don't want to get into that today, but it's a good question, George. Any other questions or comments about this? Yes, Doug. Does, the, does evil plan against people? Doug. Yes. Does plan against yes, Doug's question is, does evil plan against people, And God, and the answer is yes. Is evil willful? Yes. Evil comes from fallen angels, which are beings that have intention and motive and will. St. Peter, uh, 1 Peter, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There it is. Yes, the answer to your question is yes. Anybody else? (laughs) Would have been a great adult forum to do today. Yes, Pam. There, the covenant we have now is the covenant, yes, the new covenant is the covenant with Je- actually, the way, that, the way that God solves the problem is he makes the covenant with his son, Jesus, who keeps the law in our place, right, who, who keeps hit the, our end of the bargain in our place, and so therefore the covenant is not based upon our fulfilling the rules, but by having trust in the fact that Jesus keeps the law in our place. So the answer to your question is yes. God's, the, the new covenant is the covenant through Jesus who keeps the law in our place. And we're going to get to that next week. But not with us personally? Yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. So anything else? Um, is this, am I going too fast? No? no? Next week's going to be worse. There's a lot more slides next week. <laughs> so anyway, just giving you a high-level thing. Uh, next week we're going to talk about the church uh, at large, the creation of the church. And we're going, to see, we're going to start to see how God solved the problem of human sin and free will without, with, with, uh, by both punishing sin and allowing human free will to continue. It's fascinating. So I will see you next week. Shall we close in prayer? All right. Lord God, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word which challenges us and which assures us of your provision for us. Despite... Um, our own brokenness. We pray, Lord, for your blessing to be upon our time here as we seek to study how you work through your church and how you work through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.